Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The year is 1971, and Ernest Hemingway said that every true podcast ends in death. Well, this is a true podcast. The movie, Brian's Song. Hey everybody, welcome to Unspooled, and this is the podcast where we are trying to find the 100 best films of all time, and then when we do, we're sending them into outer space. We're in a brand new series right now called Underdogs. These are all sports films based on true life events. Which I think is such a wonderful, fun mashup to be doing. Like It's cerebral, honestly. I mean, because yes, you and I love sports. And so it's great to have a whole season of sports films. Films I mostly haven't seen. A lot of these are brand new to me. I'm wondering if they're brand new to most people out there. But also, I think talking about true life and how true life gets shaped into film and what people take and don't take from the real story, how a director shapes you know, a real occurrence into a fictional film, what he thinks audiences want to see and don't. To me, this is kind of the meat and the heart of what I love about film criticism, because you really get into questions of intention and and right. shaping. And I'm just excited to talk about all of these. It was fun to talk about it last week with Hoosiers and how dramatically that film has changed. And now we have another film based on a true story called Brian's Song. You know, this is a movie that I've heard referenced so much in my life. And um, I think for a certain group of people, this really registered with them. And we'll get into all of that. Um, but this was a TV movie originally. And this is the first time we've done a TV film. But in many respects, I think that a TV film is going to have a bigger audience than any film might because there's no barrier to entry, right? And this film was such a massive hit that you can see that the reason why we picked it was because of it's cultural impact. Very rarely are there TV films that I think bring the weight that this film did at the time that it did. Yeah, I mean, this is a TV film that when it premiered on ABC, 
48% of the televisions in America were watching it. 48%. Wow. And it did something incredibly unusual. Because, you know, I'm used to the idea of like a movie hits theaters and then maybe in a year or two, it's on cable, right? Or it's on TV. Yeah. The way that we talked about Shawshank. This movie did the opposite. It was a TV movie of the week that then went to theaters because people are like, I need to see that again. You need to play that again. Like the phone lines lit up at ABC. Uh, every film critic wrote about it and took it seriously. Like this film was a sensation. So uh, what do you say, me? Should we hut, hut, unspool it? The year is 1971. The microprocessor is invented bringing it with it the dawn of the digital age. Uh, the birth of Greenpeace signals a growing concern about the Earth's resources as well as the responsibility of worldwide governments to protect said resources. The 26th Amendment is ratified, lowering the age of voting from 21 to 18. Disney World in Florida opens, and women in Switzerland are granted the right to vote. Uh, China becomes a part of the UN. Jim Morrison dies and cigarette ads are banned from TV. Um, this is a pretty popular year, especially if you're an unspooled fan, because this is the year that The French Connection, A Clockwork Orange, and The Last Picture Show comes out. Uh, Amy, tell me a little bit about Brian's song. Who's in it? Who made it? What, what, what are we in store for? Brian Song, this movie is directed by Buzz Kulik, who Paul will be happy to know did a Perry Mason TV movie in the 50s, Paul being our biggest Perry Mason fan. Um, yep. It is written by William Blinn, who went on to do Starsky and Hutch and, uh, amazingly, Purple Rain, a film that I wow. deeply, deeply love. Um, this movie, however, is based really on a memoir called I Am Third, which was written by football player Gail Sayers, who was the youngest football player ever inducted into the Hall of Fame, a record that still stands. He still is the youngest player ever inducted into the Hall of Fame. Um, in his memoir, Gail talks about his friendship with his football team roommate, Brian Piccolo, who, when the book came out, had recently died of cancer at the age of 26. Now, here's the thing about their friendship. Gail was black, Brian was white, and in the late 60s, they became the first ever interracial teammates in the NFL. Like, it became a thing. It became a story. It wasn't their idea to become roommates, and they were slow to become friends, but they do become genuine friends. And so this movie, which stars Billy Dee Williams as Gale and James Conn as Brian, is the story of their friendship, you know, from when they met through Brian's death. Mr. Sayers, big gun from big school. I'm number two all over again. Well, old buddy, I'm number one guy now, but for all the wrong reasons. Unless you come back 100%, people are going to say, uh, people will get in on a, on a pass. Lucky break. See, I, I don't want it like that. I'm going to whip you, Sayers. But you got to be at your best. I won't mean a thing. You're not going to be one second slower one degree weaker. I am going to work your tail off and get that leg back in shape. For my sake. You got that. So as I was saying, your Brian song is this TV movie, movie that became this insane, crazy hit. I mean, a hit so big that even the theme song of Brian's song, a song that they called Hands of Time, or really then they just turned it into calling it Brian's song, that also became a big hit. Which is crazy. Um, and it, I think that that's a little bit magical because when the movie premiered on TV on November 30th, 1971, the number one song on the charts was also a famous film TV song about a man. 
except it's about a man who does not have friends, a complicated man, a bad mother, and nobody oh, understands him but goodness. this woman. Yes. Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? You're damn right. Amy, what, I mean, what a year for movies. I mean, I'm just thinking about this. Like, you have so many voices kind of popping right here. I mean, when you look at the popular films, French Connection, Shaft, Brian's Song, Last Picture Show, um, there's so much going on. It, It seems like, you know, one of those seminal years of American cinema. It really does, doesn't it? Although, is it? am I insane that it always confuses me that A Clockwork Orange came out in the 70s? In my brain, that movie came out in the 60s. Am I weird? It has that kind of aesthetic visually inside the film, like, and thankfully so, because I feel like you wouldn't want that. That film would hold up, I don't think, as well if it had more of a 70s like kind of art look to it. <laughs> You're right. But no, like this is a moment where we're launching names and we're launching stars. I mean, Brian Song launches Billy D. Williams and James Conn's career. Like they'd been working, they'd been kicking around. And this is the movie that then got them things like The Godfather and the movies that Billy D. Williams did with Diana Ross that were so popular that then he wound up in Empire Strikes Back like 10 years later. Like this is a moment of like talent bursting forth. Yeah, I, I'm always fascinated by a movie that comes out And all of America embraces because you go from really being an actor to a superstar. And it's really interesting that these two actors had what it took to be superstars. They're both really great actors. But right here, you can tell that they're both a little green. Yeah, they are. They're both a little green. And yet James Caan at this moment in his career also thought he was too good to be making a TV movie. Like he turned down this movie four times, not realizing wow. it was going to become the sensation that he was. And uh, let's just say, I maybe I should say a spoiler alert here a little bit. Spoiler alert, you know, like his character dies at the well, end of the Amy, film. I mean, like, like, like we said in our intro, yeah. we are literally told <laughs> someone is going to die. I mean, yeah. the voiceover in the beginning is... Hilarious. The voiceover throughout is pretty hilarious. I mean, this is a yeah. this is a TV movie that's one step away from an after school special in many respects, but it works. But it works. Anyway, let's play that intro and then we'll, and then we'll get back into it. This is a story about two men, one named Gail Sears, the other Brian Piccolo. They came from different parts of the country. They competed for the same job. One was white, the other black. One liked to talk a lot. The other was shy as a three-year-old. Our story is about how they came to know each other, fight each other, and help each other. That music that you're hearing, by the way, is the Brian's theme, the song Mm -hmm. that became so incredibly popular about it. Now, yes, so James Conn's going to die. All right, everybody, he dies at the end of the movie. He dies, he dies, he dies. He's going to die of cancer. It's going to be slow. It's going to be painful. But James Conn, who was a little bit reluctant to do this movie, I think he didn't take it that seriously because when he had his death scenes, he actually said to somebody, hold my cigarette, hold my Coke. I have to go die. (laughs) Well, it seems like James Conn is one of those actors who... You know, he doesn't seem like a traditional 
like I'm getting into character, but then can deliver these really um, powerful performances. You know, and in this film, I do think even though they are both a little green, um, there is something that connects me to this movie so much more than I was connected to Hoosiers. Like, I'm all in. Like, the sets are kind of shitty. The camera work is bonkers. Like, I mean, bonkers to the point where, like, those zoom shots where the camera just kind of racks focus really fast to someone's face on a reaction is doing no actor any service. I mean, it is really like, bah, bah, bah. Um, and there is something about these two men and this relationship that they have that I could watch them literally eat pizza in their room and, and be like, great, that's a movie I'm in. And, and it's an interesting relationship because Gail Sayers is very much like they say at the beginning is not a, a very talkative guy. He doesn't become incredibly talkative. I think one of the biggest turning points in the film is that he makes a joke, and that's about a uh, almost an hour into the film. You know, so it's not like they have this buddy cop giving each other shit relationship. It really is a relationship of of two people who like love and support each other, which is I don't know a different vibe than what I, what I think I've been seeing. Like they're they're pushing each other, but it's not like the traditional Rocky or Hoosiers. There's something. I, you know, what, what did you think about that relationship or, or the underlying like mojo of this movie? Yeah. I mean, well, from the beginning of when they meet, you know, they have that kind of meeting where James Caan is giving him so much shit about being a quiet talker and he's doing it in this like friendly, sarcastic mm-hmm. way where you can't tell if he's mad at him or not. I mean, let, let's listen to that because it's so fun. Gail Sayers. Yeah. Hey, Brian Piccolo. Met up in uh, Buffalo in that All-America game last June. Yeah, sorry I didn't remember. I'm not very good at that kind of stuff. Oh, golly. Hey, uh, that's all right. I can see how you might forget, but... Well, I sure couldn't. I mean, that was a heck of a talk we had, man. I said, uh, I'm Brian Piccolo. I, uh, I hear we'll both be playing for the Bears. And you said, well, I'll never forget it. You said, uh-huh, just like that, uh-huh. Whenever I'm feeling kind of low and depressed, well, well, I think about that advice. You know, a lot of guys wouldn't have talked to me at all, but not you. You just said, uh-huh, just like that, right out. Like, that sets up this kind of dynamic between them, you know, that this is a story not about guys who are opposites because of, like, the color of their skin. Right. They're opposites on just a really yeah. fundamental level. They're just really different people. And they don't get along early on in the film, honestly, because... Billy D. Williams thinks that James Conn is a jerk and James Conn thinks that Billy D. Williams is a quiet snob. He like misinterprets his quietness as like being, you know, too good for him because he was like the better football player. And they, and you, and so when they learn to kind of come together as friends, it feels like a really genuine earned friendship. Like, I mean, yeah, like we have these like opposites become friends stories a lot in films, but something about they, the way they play it feels really legitimate. It doesn't feel like Yes, I know where this trajectory is going to go. Yes, you're going to be fine. But then where you get to go from this like first meeting of Billy D. Williams as the guy who doesn't talk and just says, uh-huh, is his friendship with Brian kind of pushes him to find his own voice, to become a leader in his team, to talk to you know his teammates, to tell them about what's happening with Brian, to step up and give speeches about how much he cares about Brian, and that their friendship pushes him to just be the leader that he quietly already should be you know it's like it's an improvement friendship like where they make each other better people and i love the way that 
you know, James Kahn's character, Brian Piccolo, doesn't take, and again, I don't know how much of this is a Hollywood version of this story, but I would imagine, because like you said, this is Gail Sayers' story, that he feels this to be true. Look, there are a couple things in this movie that are patently wrong, like like James Kahn has a, a pretty noticeable Southern accent. Uh, that's not true because, uh, you know, Piccolo came from like Massachusetts, um, you know, and Piccolo uh, had testicular cancer. Uh, that was another, and they couldn't quite say it on TV at that time. And uh, yeah, they weren't uh, allowed to say the word testicle. They, yeah. Is, wow. And, uh, and, and by the way, like that's, uh, the, his, his story of that and those procedures that he had to go through are just totally gut-wrenching. But all that to be said, I do believe that Gail does believe that Brian Piccolo was trying to make him better because Brian Piccolo was a guy who was like, hey, look, I may be starting now, but I didn't earn it. I want to I wanna earn it. And everything that Brian Piccolo does is to make himself better, right? They take out the competition of it. And the only competition is pushing each other. And I think there is something almost akin to a romantic relationship, which I believe is the reason why this movie is such a giant hit. Because I think that if you like sports, you're going to love the story of you know, Gail and Brian. And if you just like a love story, it's going to work that way too. It's almost like a love story disguised as a sports film, which I was thinking about. And I go, I think maybe all sports films have that kind of, you know, this idea of like talking about your feelings, getting out in front of yourself, doing better. But because it's hidden in sports, you can, you know, I think that it, it protects us from acknowledging it. But the truth is, is like sports movies make us cry, right? It makes people who may not want to see uh, The Notebook go to see, you know, uh, The Rookie, you know, or not the Charlie Sheen one, the one with uh, <laughs> the one with uh, Dennis Quaid. But like, you know, like these movies, like, you know that you're in for a good cry. Like you might be in for a good cry on a, on a rom-com or something like that. So I... I love that. And I just want to kind of pick up that for a second, like that idea of like the acceptable cry, right? Like, or, you know, for people who might deem themselves uh, and not to be in these like heteronormative, you know, stereotypes, but look, the macho guy can feel like, oh, I can feel this because these guys are great football players and they can cry. Like, you know, like, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? You know, from your perspective? I think you're reading my mind because what really struck me watching this film is a kind of eerie coincidence. So this film comes out in 71. It's a cancer story, you know, sports guy dies, massive hit. And what came out just exactly one year before it was a movie literally called Love Story. You know, right. literally a love story, literally called Love Story, literally a story about two opposites who meet when they're young and then the girl dies of cancer. And that movie was a giant hit. And like, I wrote about it last year because like it was the it was the 50 year anniversary. Um, and so I like interviewed Ali McGraw and um, Ryan O'Neill about it. And I went and I like read all the reviews. And of course, the reviews at that time were like, it's corny. It wants to make you right. cry, blah, 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 blah. But you couldn't miss this movie. And so I was thinking with the timing, it almost feels like they were thinking, 
Okay, men kind of wanted to know what the love story phenomenon was about, but they weren't going to let themselves really get into it. And so now we're going to take the love story idea and put it in this movie. And then the men who wanted to like love story but couldn't like love story can put all their emotions over here, right? Because it's just too big of a coincidence to have these two young people dying of a mysterious disease that mostly goes unmentioned in both films. Roger Ebert said that Ali McGraw dies of what he called like Ali McGraw disease, where the person with the disease just becomes more and more beautiful until they die. But yeah, like it's too similar. And so I was thinking exactly what you're thinking. Like this is a way to let people access their emotions when they don't want to do it for the other film, but, but they'll do it here. Like actually even one of the writers of the film, somebody asked him what he thought the legacy of this movie was. And this is exactly what he talked about. I can't tell you how many times guys have said to me, it's the first time I cried. (laughs) around other guys that sounds stupid and it is to some degree and you know now it's on television as as a cliche joke that's okay i got no problem with that uh but there's something to be said for that there's something to be said for that i mean kurt russell said i never cried at a movie before that picture um manipulative yes sure it is sentimental yes sure it is um so what and so yeah like I guess when I was reading about Brian's song, when I was reading articles about it kind of more from today, nobody was mentioning the love story parallel. But when I went back and read Brian's song articles from the period, from when it came out, everybody talked about the love story connection. Everybody brought it up. Like one of the film reviews I read, it even started with like this line that's taken from love story. What can you say about a 26 year old Chicago bear fullback who died of cancer? And so the connection just seems like it would have been really obvious at the time. Like, it kind of reminds me of when we reviewed um, Wizard of Oz. Right. And it surprised me to realize that all of the reviews of Wizard of Oz from the time of Wizard of Oz thought it was a Snow White ripoff. Oh, right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot like that. I, that's why I love going back and reading original source material because they make connections that we forget about. Yeah, that's the one thing I think that we lose is perspective when we look at films because we're watching them out of order. We're not seeing them the way that popular culture saw them. And I think it's so easy to make, you know, judgments now when you're living in a world where you're watching all these Marvel movies and you see like the DC movies being a reaction to them. But if you were just to watch, you know, a DC movie by itself, like the context is kind of lost because it's working. Movies are always kind of working in a larger ecosystem. You know, actors are trying to do different things, but if that's the first thing you see them in, you associate them as that. Like, I remember that one point, Eddie Murphy talking about how, you know, most people just know him as the star of Daddy Daycare, you know, and then people who are older go, oh, no, that's Eddie Murphy. He's delirious. He's raw. He's Beverly Hills Cop. And this idea of like, you know, when you come in and how you come in really does affect uh, the way that we view all these films, you know, it's um, and I, and I wonder if maybe yeah. there was a thought where it was like, hey, maybe love story successful. Let's go. This is our next love story. Yeah. I mean, even with that generational thing, like if you're a younger Eddie Murphy fan, then you're aghast that he was ever the guy from Raw. And right. if you're a Raw fan, you're aghast that he became the guy in Daddy's Day Camp. And he, he can be both. He can be everything. But you you stake these claims and then the artist at the question is like in the middle of all these different cross beams that make it, I think, really hard for people to figure out what they should be doing next of their own merit. And also the fact that this had just happened. I mean, Brian Piccolo had just died. 
I mean, it's kind of like if maybe next year somebody makes a movie about Chadwick Boseman. It's like very soon after the death to tell a story about something that everybody knows just happened, but that they want to honor in some way. They want to be able to have like a public display of grief that they couldn't have in the way that it happened. Well, I mean, even, you know, Gail Sayers was supposed to play himself in this movie. Like, that's the wild part of that, too. Like, but he couldn't because training camp conflicted with his shooting. So he was still in the NFL. This is all going on. And that was the idea that I had the hardest time kind of pinning down. Like, how long did this movie actually take place in? Like, from when they first meet as these rookies to when Brian dies. Do you have an idea of that timeline, roughly? They they mess with it a little bit in the film. Like, in the film, I think they meet and become roommates in... 1965 and in reality it wasn't for another two years i think they become roommates in like 67 mm. a little bit of a difference but it, it still seems to be about a four to five year story from beginning to end because the book comes out in like 70 okay. he wrote the memoir in 70 yeah and gail's still playing at that point too and he only played for six years in the nfl justin and so good Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary dairy. You know what I think is interesting as well is this is a movie not about the big game. Like there is no, no pomp and circumstance around win it for me. I mean, one of the best jokes ultimately is like, that, you know, uh, Gail Sayers is like, we got to go win it for Brian Piccolo. And then they lose, you know, and, and Piccolo's <laughs> like, hey, you can't do that. You can't get you can't get in yeah. there. Um, but, yeah, you're not supposed to say lose one for the Gipper. Yeah. And you see and I think the moments that you see are really these players and they're using real footage. And I believe and tell me if you have research shows this, but it seems like they put Jack Warden on a real field during a game. And, you know, they mixed it in with real NFL footage, which is so wild to kind of see. But it actually at the wrong field is at uh, Soldier Field. And at the time that Gail was playing, it was actually at Wrigley Field. Um, but there, Jack Warden looks so out of place on that sideline. Like, they're clearly rolling the camera. He doesn't quite know what to do. He's like, yeah, yeah, get in there. And I feel like there's a real <laughs> guy next to him. I, I think that I might even be, uh, I don't... Like, I feel like they're just trying to get all these shots. And it actually does a great job of, like, mixing and matching because the way that they, the camera angles of that sequence are pretty phenomenal, I thought, um, of kind of trying to buy it. Even when they take Gale off the uh, off the field and stretcher when he hurts his knee, uh, you know, they're, that's this Gale without his helmet on. They're, the shot was long enough that you're able to see it. Um, but you also get to see these two men and what they actually did. And that's something I think that's so interesting about these films a lot of times like yes it's so-and-so doing such and such you know like you're gonna see Chadwick Boseman a great example you know playing Jackie Robinson but there's something really powerful about actually seeing the actual player do 
what they are so amazing. I remember just watching Gail Sayers last night and going like, wow, he, wow. Like watching him run, I was so impressed because you know it's real. Uh, I don't know. That was just a, like, maybe I'm arguing for, uh, if we're basing things on real life, just cutting to the actual footage, like, and then, and just doing it like this, just cut around it. It like add the drama in your inserts, but let it, let me see the real players do the real thing. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It, it is almost a point. like, I guess like a hybrid film documentary since you are watching like, actual Gail and actual Brian on the field, you know, scoring touchdowns and making yeah. runs. And I I agree. Like, I want to try to come up with an ethical reason why you can't do that. But honestly, like, when it comes to the way that Gail Sayers ran, he, I mean, he's like the Barishnikov of football on, on the field. Like, he was just known for being this guy who could go from like zero to 60 really fast. Like he just ran really fast and he could evade people. He saw holes that nobody else saw. He could change his direction, but like not lose any speed. Like he was this type of, you know, generational runner. I mean, to only play six years and be inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame, like the people who played with him, you know, consistently say that he was like the best they really ever saw. I mean, Mike Dicka, who played with him for a few years, called him the greatest player he'd ever seen. Right. And Billy D. Williams is not an athlete and Billy Dee Williams was a very slow runner and Billy Dee Williams couldn't do that. Like you just couldn't understand how good Gail was if it was Billy Dee Williams, even like if everybody else on the field was like running in slow motion and they were yeah. going to do some camera trick, it wouldn't work. You couldn't pull that well, off. You I would mean, never understand what made Gail so great. And, you know, and, and, and I think that I, I have a lot more respect for Gail Sayers, but also, you know, James Conn is actually a, an athlete. I mean, that's the other thing about James Conn. Like he was better, like, you know, on the field than, uh, than Gail Sayers. And it seemed like in the movie, with the exception of that one running scene, uh, he looked pretty good. Like he didn't, you know, I guess there was something about it too, where it wasn't like, oh, you're just the friend who's not as good. You're but but you're my, you know, my cheerleader. Like, like there is something really impressive about, uh, Brian Piccolo, you know, and, and it's, and it's beautiful that, you know, I think oftentimes when you're on a team like this, and we just saw this with The Last Dance, you know, somebody like Michael Jordan overshadows someone like Scottie Pippen. And you see Scottie Pippen uh, in that documentary, you know, talk about the way he was treated and the way he was overshadowed. And and I'm sure that, you know, on a team like this with a player like that, it's very hard to give somebody else that attention. Like, in, And oftentimes great teams, even though they're led by an amazing player, they have so many other people around them to make them look good. I mean, it's let's talk about your your example. I think that LeBron looks good because of Alex Caruso, you know, but now Alex Caruso is not going to get the the love of that. Like, you know, it's because it's going to be low. LeBron did it. Although, uh, although, yeah. I look like I'm flashing you now, but it's only because I'm wearing an Alex Caruso shirt. Yes, the goat, <laughs> the goat. Um, but yeah, I mean, that I, I think we even talked about this a little bit with love and basketball that like, I get very moved looking at the basketball players on the bench and knowing that each one of them was not just the best at their high school, but like the best probably in their state at the time. They could beat pretty much anybody else in America at basketball, but they happen to be on a team with LeBron. And so they don't get that many minutes. And I I find that to be, you know, so sad and so kind of worthy of respect at the same time. Like I want to love those guys extra hard because- they are they are great. They are great, great athletes. And to have Brian give the speech that he gives here in this film, you know, like I was the second best. Yes. I just happened to go to a school with the first best. He has always lived in the shadow of somebody great. As great as he is, as much as he could beat like 
everybody in America except for like four people. He just always happens to be next to the four people who make him look bad. Well, you know, and there was something about uh, Reggie Jackson, not the baseball player, but the player for the Clippers said, you know, and it was really interesting. It's like you're in a professional sport, which means that you are elite. Like you are at a level that no one else is at, but you're just surrounded by people who are also in that same pond. So it's not like, how did you get into the NBA? Like, no, no, no. You got into the NBA because you are phenomenal. You may not be as phenomenal as the best player in the NBA, but you are phenomenal. I think that sometimes we forget that. I think it's so easy to be like, oh, that that person's not as good. But when you actually realize the amount of work that goes into it, and that's why I think this movie does a great job of like, again, showing like there are journeymen, there are people here. It's inspiring in that way. It's inspiring to see what Brian Piccolo is able to do. And and I mean, Brian Piccolo with his all shucks mentality and, and his, mm, oh, I didn't get the thing. You also see the joy and the excitement and the lack of cool on both of their parts when they get on the team. Like when they find out like, hey, we are sharing a room, which means we didn't get cut. And they have like, they have that celebration. They they have, there's some nice moments where these characters celebrate. The way they structured it kind of almost means like becoming roommates is a success. Like they tie success to the complicated thing of becoming Mm -hmm. roommates. And so it's like this mix and match of emotions but they're just like they're little kids yeah they're not little kids but they're like happy like little kids and because they're the lowest on the the totem pole they're gonna get hazed by the older players who come at them with like what is happening they come at them with them with this like giant bowl of oatmeal what are they going to do with that oatmeal because chili or something i don't know they were gonna like put them with baked beans i don't know what that was i wanted to like find out what the uh chicago that clearly was like a gail sayers like hey this is what they did to me but it looks so weird on camera like they're gonna like tar and tar and feather them with like chili or something. Oh, it was weird. Wait, I guess it's basically dazed and confused, just like everybody in the 70s just was getting hazed. Yeah, just put some food on them. But yeah, to that point about how Brian's work ethic is so inspirational, I loved hearing this clip from the real Gale. Like, they asked him how accurate the Brian character was, and he sounds like he's kind of dissing him, but he also is speaking about his effort with so much love that He's really, I think, cluing into that same element of, like, inspiration. Gail, uh, was the movie Brian's Song an accurate depiction of your relationship with Brian Piccolo? It was. It, it was very true. Uh, uh, I spent about, you know, two weeks with the producers and the actors, and we went over dates and events and uh, Brian's mannerisms and, and mine. And I, I thought they did a very fine job. Of course, some of the, the dates were changed, some of the time sequences were out of sync, but for the most part, it was a very true movie. How do you remember Brian Piccolo? Uh, I remember Brian as a, a hard-working football player. Wasn't a great football player, but uh, he was better than average. Uh, he was a type of football player that uh, a coach couldn't cut uh, because you knew that uh, if you called on Brian Piccolo on a third and two, he was, he's going to get that yardage somehow. You knew that if you called on him to play in a ball game, he would grade out between 95 and 100 because he would not make any mistakes. He was a student of the game, and he uh, uh, had less talent than many football players that came to the Bears during that time, but he stuck around because he worked hard at it. By the way, another person that they thought about having play the James Conn part uh, when they were trying to figure it out uh, was actually Burt Reynolds. Oh, Did you really? know about that? Yeah, yeah, they were thinking about Burt Reynolds. Well, here, I'll let the producer, Leonard Goldberg, talk about it. Burt Reynolds wanted to do it, 
Bert was a big movie star and he wanted to do the movie for television. And I remember Paul saying to me, I, I know he's a big movie star, but when he dies, are we going to cry? And I don't think so. Very bold statement for a young man. Oh, wow. But by the way, you know, that's where I feel like we can talk a little bit about James Caan, too. Like, James, you know, James Caan and Burt Reynolds are interesting actors, cut of the same mold that kind of like hold my beer. I'm going to go do my death scene. Uh, and that's not how either of them talk. But uh, but there is something a little bit more emotionally vulnerable about James Caan here. I feel like, you know, that end, I had to put on subtitles. I did not understand a word he was saying when he was like, well, they're, 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 I was like, like his death scene was so muddled uh, and muddy to the point of actually being irritating. Like I was confused. I was like, I want to, I want to be here in this moment a little bit more, but it was like, um, I mean, what he's saying to his wife is he's saying to his wife as he's dying, like who'd ever believe it, joy, who'd ever believe it, which is actually what he said on his deathbed, according to um, Gail's book that, and that to him, it meant like we lived so much life and, who would have thought it would have ended this way? Like, who would have ever thought we'd get all of this? You know, it, it amazes me how young he is, that he's 26. He has three kids. He has an NFL career. He has a wife and he dies of cancer, you know, to live that much of a life in such a short time. I mean, either way, like, yeah, we were alluding to this. Like when you read about what the real Brian Piccolo went through with his cancer treatments, like it sounds almost medieval. It sounds like at the time... You know, they were still trying to figure out how to deal with a cancer this complicated. Right. Like the cancer that he had, like now if you have it, you actually it's one of the better cancers to have, quote unquote. Like you can okay. actually survive it fairly easily if you catch it um early. Um, but at the time, like less than five percent of people with his cancer lived longer than five years, and the methods they took to try to cure him were pretty bad. Like by the time they caught it, he had a grapefruit size malignant cancer oh. inside of his body in his chest. And he like, they cut that out. They had like several operations. They cut, they gave him a mastectomy. They removed his testicles. Like they basically just cut him to pieces. Yeah. And for, and horrible for his wife to witness, horrible for everybody to have to, to, to be there for and to try to help him through it. And in a way, going back to what you said about love story, like the simplicity of him dying is probably better served because of the narrative that they're trying to tell, right? Um, because it, when you read it, 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 it's so hard to disconnect from how brutal it was. You know, at least for me, I'm like, oh, it, like it. This movie is oddly happy, even though it is a movie where a character dies. They're letting you know in the beginning a character's going to die. You know, it's going to not be Gail Sayers because if you are alive at this point, you know Gail Sayers is still playing in the NFL. You know. Uh, so I think there is something smart about how they were able to simplify it, keep him looking pretty healthy for the most part, because it allows the actual story, the love story to kind of shine. Yeah. It, I mean, from the first minute where they're set up as being roommates, there's kind of this contrast. It's it's pitched to them as though it's going to be very, very hard. And I mean, well, here's Gail's reaction. JC's idea. Yes, I did agree with him. Is that this is 1965, and we'd like the Bears to room together according to position without any regard to race. So we'd like you and Brian Piccolo to room together. That's all? 
That's what this is about? Is that all? Yeah, I... You had me worried. I thought it was something really. Say, this is something really. Man, you're talking about a white man and a black man rooming together on a team that's never been done before. And you're gonna be calling Tom by some blacks and uppity nigger by some whites. And when we go on the road, man, I'm talking about we going to Atlanta, Houston, Miami, New Orleans. And there ain't gonna be no better than Detroit or Minnesota or San Francisco or any other town we play in. You're gonna rock the boat, says. And the people out there that's already seasick. That scene, I really love kind of the back and forth of it. You know, that you have um, the actor Bernie Casey, who I really love because of Revenge of the Nerds, you know, coming in and saying, like, this is going to be tough. And Gail being like, it's fine. I don't mind at all. You know, and both of them having these different perspectives on how it would be, like how it would play out. You know, maybe Gail being like a little bit naive at the time. Maybe Bernie being a little bit more like sad or cynical about how he thinks it's going to play out. What's interesting, and they don't mention this in the movie, like the very first day they became roommates, they were actually in Birmingham, Alabama that night, which already felt like a loaded place to be. And they kind of looked at each other and they're like, we shouldn't go out to eat together. And they like ate, you know, like with the players of their same race and kind of separated because they were nervous about how it would play. And their friendship kind of seems like it took a little bit, you know, that they didn't really eat together in public for about a year. And then once they did, they're like, this is great. We're well, just going to keep doing this. But there is, you, you even see it kind of in those early scenes, like say when um, they're still hazing each other a little bit back and forth, like the mashed potato scene in the yeah. cafeteria. Like when you look around the cafeteria scene, you see that the team, the Chicago Bears, is fairly 50-50. It's like a 50-50 kind of diverse team. Right. But it also looks grouped, you know? It does look like people aren't mixing as friends very much in that team you know that they know each other but like all the black players are kind of sitting at this table and all the white players are sitting at this table and only in a few spaces are they sitting next to each other yeah you know and i wonder if there is an element of green booking to this movie um but then again i want to i didn't read gail's book and you know i so i want to trust gail as that narrator too it's not somebody telling his story but there is an element of that was never really an issue with these guys. They got over it. And again, I think this is part of the TV movie of it all, right? We got to get to what we need to get to. It's too complicated of an idea. There's too much nuance there because, you know, not that, that, you know, to show that awkwardness between them. Um, The awkwardness between them always was uh, competitive. And I didn't know how I, I didn't know how I felt about that. I feel like, again, like, is that a good thing or a bad thing that you, don't embrace it. And I guess maybe it's a good thing because that's not what their relationship was about. It wasn't about, you know, Green Book is about someone who doesn't necessarily consider themselves a racist, but has some racist attitudes. Um, and and then here, you know, this, this movie really, I guess, race is a back burner issue that people are like, hey, hey, just, you know, there's issues. But But I also look at it and I go, it's 1971, so I feel like maybe there is a world where since it wasn't really a structural part of their relationship more than just kind of the the outside world looking in on them, is it even really worth, you know, adding? You know, I was actually thinking about Green Book watching this too. I was kind of thinking about the question of like, why this story? Why then? Why now? What do they want audiences to feel from it? Yeah, and And I was thinking about this question because, you know, like, 
listening to interviews of like, say, um, Brian's widow, you know, they're kind of like, we're surprised that this was really the story they decided to tell about my husband, you know, who I think was, he was a man, he was a father, he was a player, he was a lot of people. And this is what they talked about. There was more to Brian than what that movie showed. I think the movie showed his essence, which was real important because he was a hardworking, never give up kind of guy. It was the black and white thing. That was the way they depicted it. It was a beautiful story and you can't change that and it's not worth it. It was funny that this was the part of his life that would become the movie. It was really just a part of his life, a very small portion of his life. This, you know, so you have this question of like, of all of the world of Brian, why was his roommate the thing that you picked up on? Like, why was that the story? And it does feel a little bit kind of green booky in that it becomes then a story that gives us hope that everything's going to be okay. And I think right now we're in kind of a moment where I'm, very suspicious of hope. Like is hope just telling you that things are fine when they really aren't right. You know, or, or was this in 1971 genuine hope? Like we've been through really rough last five years. Stuff is not feeling like it's going to get better in 1971. Are the emotions people feel when they see Brian's song and the importance that it has and the heft that it has, is it at all green bookian where you're like, I feel like America is going to be okay now. Thank you for telling me this story that makes me feel America is going to be okay. Right. You want to say, but is like, it a hey, story about an exceptional friendship or is it a story about America actually moving in the right direction? Like, is it moving in the right direction or were Gail and Brian just like genuinely great friends? And that's an important story. And I think song. you could, I think you can tell a story that kind of does both. And I think this movie whitewashes pretty much everything across the board in the attempt, I think, to be a functional TV movie. It's like, we don't even really understand the extent of Gail's injury, like it, you know, you know, it's bad, but I, you know, and, and, but we never really, there's like these two injuries that kind of bracket it. Gail gets hurt and then Brian gets cancer. Yeah. And I think when Gail's injury comes up, like no one says like, you may never play again. And that's really what was at stake there. You know, like, like there's nothing that lets you know that that's not just a break. Right. You know, and and which, by the way, is detrimental to uh, someone who is a running, you know, he's not running back. He's a halfback. But the uh, but that idea, like it's detrimental to his career. But um, I mean, the the music might say that. I mean, the music when he gets hurt is to me, you were talking about like the TV of the week elements of it. The music is so melodramatic. I mean, that music is basically saying everybody's going to die. We're all going to die right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it is very intense. I mean, it made me laugh. I mean, there's a lot of things in this movie that make me laugh. But this movie does very much, like, just touch the basis. Like, you know, I think right now we have a palette in cinema where we can paint with multiple variations of color. And this is, um, and not, not even talking about racial stuff, I'm just talking about, like, all the emotions of, of the human spirit. And I feel like this movie just does, like, the seven basic ones. You know, it's like, you know, we just kind of get, we don't go deeper than that. And I think the remake of Brian's song, which came out in 2001 uh, with uh, Mackay Pfeiffer and um, Sean Mayer, I think touches a little bit more about how the civil rights, the integration and what's going on in the country at that point is playing a part here and how that serves to actually draw them closer together. And, and it's a more integral part of their story because truthfully, the chances that these two men would have become friends is 
not by choice. They were forced together. They were, you know, they were, they were integrated together. And that forced relationship allows something really beautiful to blossom. And it's, you know, and I think they do acknowledge that and they pay that, you know, that idea that this would never have happened another way. But, um, you know, I don't know if we had the, if we'd had the tools to do that, especially in a TV movie, especially as you're shooting this movie on the set of Bewitched. I don't know if you feel like you can, uh, <laughs> you can, you can True get story, in story. Yes. Yes. On the set of Bewitched. That's interesting about the Mackay Pfeiffer version, because I would not have guessed it was a better film. I haven't seen it. I just watched a little bit of the trailer and mm-hmm. I was like, oh God, really? No, I'm yeah. not saying it's a better film. I'm just saying that they may, that they may tackle it with a little bit. They can at least engage it a little bit more, I think. It's a true story. <coughs> you okay? No one is calling any doctor. What's the matter, you all right? Just go see the doctor back now, I have and been we- to the doctor here. I am Piccolo. That's cancer. They found a tumor in his chest. Of the courage of champions. You do what you gotta do. You get in there, you cut me up whatever way you have to, but you leave enough of me left to get back on that field. Because I am playing football again. The bonds of friendship. Look good, Victor. Yeah? Compared to what? Compared to the first day you found out we were gonna be Romans. <laughs> and strength in the face of tragedy. What I tell you here and now, I accept this for Brian Piccolo. It's mine tonight, but uh, it's Brian Piccolo's tomorrow. Although I do have to say, like, the way that, you know, Brian and Gail handle race in here seems to be pretty much word for word exactly how they handled it in their friendship. They handled it just by making jokes about it constantly, just kidding each other because they thought it was they wanted to take the strangeness out of it through humor. Right. So it is like when there's that scene when a um, journalist comes up to them in the locker room and they're like, what's it like to be roommates? And Brian makes that joke about how he just doesn't want him using the bathroom, you know, like right, a bathroom right. segregation joke, which totally went over my head until I thought about it. I thought it was oh. just that he said he was gross in the bathroom. I, I thought it was realize. a shit joke. No, that's what I thought, too. But it wasn't. It wasn't. It was about like integrated bathrooms. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. I didn't catch that wow, either. OK. OK. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. And then they did, it didn't actually even include the next line, which is then the journalist turned to Gail and Gail and asked Gail, like, what do you guys talk about, though? And Gail just said race relations. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, all of this stuff in this movie that made me gasp, you know, like the slurs that Brian uses, you know, but like that Brian uses to make fun of, like, the scene where he says, I'm having a new kid. I'm going to name it after you. It's going to be this slur. Like, that is a line that he said in real life that it seems like Gail laughed about in his book, you know, but it's yeah. kind of strange to watch it now. Like, now I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. I, I mean, we have to talk about the N-word scene, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a really interesting case of, of you know, as we've tackled many a movie that has dealt with that word. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to play the scene, but I think we could talk about what purpose that scene serves in the film. And basically, Brian Piccolo is trying to motivate Gail to keep on pushing, right? And and the way I read it was, you know, like he's trying to make him angry, like to get him angry to be like, go and and you know do do it, like push through it. And he and he and he you know throws out this slur and uh, the N word, and but but kind of like fumbles it you know and 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 doesn't do it the right way and it, to gail just starts cracking up and it just becomes this 
I thought, an incredibly joyful, real, grounded moment between these two men that has to be based in reality. That has to be, this is a story from the book, One Million Percent, because it's this, this is a moment that is, it did more for the friendship in me and showing me like what this bond was and how deep it was because of that word being so charged in that time. But the safety that these two men had doing it in the way that when, you know, Gail's wife comes down and he kind of tells her what's going on. And it it is all um, it wasn't making light of the word. It wasn't being used in a way it was it, it actually really uh, elevates this relationship and, and the, the power of these two men and the bond and the closeness. So I, I think it's actually a really beautiful scene, um, you know, that is in the film using that word. Yeah. I, I, it was a scene I would just kind of call like one of the damnedest scenes I've ever seen, you know, the laughter, like it's like a full minute of laughter in that scene. And yeah, like what really I think popped out to me in it is Gail's understanding of who his friend was and like why his friend was saying it and calling it out. Like that's the lamest motivation I've ever heard. Like, I can't believe you're trying to motivate me with something that obvious and Gail knowing and trusting his friend enough to like not have there be confused. It's so weird. I mean, it's weird. Like it's like, you shouldn't do that. You know, that's not cool. Well, look, here's the thing, but it happened. Right. This is something that happened in this moment that is, for whatever reason it happened, it captured this thing. And, and, and I think Gail puts it in the book to show, like, I, in my mind, in a world where, especially at this time, when that word probably is more charged, uh, you know, probably getting more and more to the point of understanding it, it not being acceptable, um, and forgive me if I'm, I'm wrong on that, but my, my thought being like, I think that that scene shows a lot about where they are, their relationship to each other. And that's why that scene is in the book. That's why that scene is in the film. And, uh, and it's an interesting, it's like, oh, wow. That, like, that tells me more than anything else, um, you know, about, about them in a way, you know, it's sort of like their comfort with each other going from these guys who, you know, Gail is somebody who's not able to open up to uh, for anything and, you know, looks at Brian with disgust when or not disgust, but in anger when he comes to try to even help him originally get back from this injury and the amount that they had to go through together to get to a place of ultimate support and trust. And and it was really I don't know, that moment is a real big turning point, not to say that that's something that we should aspire to. I'm not saying that at all, but um, I, I want to respect Gail and his story and why that is important for him to tell that story. It's not, that's not a writer's invention, I guess. Yeah. It, it had me thinking about, you know, recently there was, you know, the issue in the NBA where like Myers Leonard for the Miami heat, um, used a slur Mm -hmm. and, you know, Charles Barkley was talking about it, you know, kind of like reconciling with it, grappling with it. And he was talking about like kind of the history of people in locker rooms, saying things they shouldn't say, you know, and you can kind of hear it in this anecdote. Like he's sort of talking about how they all said wild stuff in the seventies and eighties. I like how he like starts to say seventies and then he corrects. He's like, I'm not that old. Um, but, uh, that is just not okay. And like, that's kind of how he ends it up. Like, it's just, it's not okay anymore. You know, it's, it's how it was and it's not okay. I'm not going to try to speak for Kenny or Shaq, but I want to say this. 
stuff that I, that we and I have said in the locker room when I played, we can't say that stuff anymore. We thought it was funny. We thought it was a joke. And I'm not going to get on TV and try to act like I ain't ever said something stupid. But I'm telling you, stuff that we said in the locker room. You're right about that. Stuff we said in the locker room, if you said it today, you're going to lose your job or get fined, depending on what type of player you are. And I tell all these jocks, hey, man, stuff we used to joke about in the 70s, excuse me, in the 80s when I played in the 90s, it can't fly anymore. No, I agree. I think that, like, look, well said. We don't need it anymore. We never needed it. And why not just call it what it is, which is, you know, I think it's destructive language that was made acceptable because, oh, it's a joke. I, I'm just saying the worst possible thing. And now we, I think we can go back to the thing and go, it's destructive language. Find another way to joke around. Or, you know, if that if that is your intent and that is your fear. Well, that's why I joke. Just don't. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And while we're kind of talking about this and their friendship and what made it, you know, really unique at the time, it's interesting because that this film and their story seems to have had like a real world impact in the NFL, like actual players said that their story and then this movie publicizing their story did push some changes happening. I remember feeling so good about the fact that these two men could get this close to each other. It helped race relations in this country, race relations in the National Football League. I think that there were other coaches after that who said, you know what, maybe I will have white ball players and black ball players room together. Let's see what it does for the bond of our football team. Two things can be true. This is a story, a personal story, but also a story that probably there's a lot of these relationships like we talked before about like we may not be hearing about all the the Gales and Bryans that are going on in the NFL. And uh, and maybe this did create a, a bonds that wouldn't necessarily be there because of this, you know, the civil rights movement and because of uh, this integration. Um, you know, that's that's a really interesting way of looking at it too. Like, you know, all these stories that are out there and all these people who had to get out of their comfort zone um, and especially white people get out of their comfort zone to, to accept and actually understand that there was no reason for this, you know, the segregation that had been going on in this country. Yeah. And, you know, this conversation, I think, kind of adds a little bit of, to me, a, l- a little bit of magic to the scene where, Gail is in the hospital with Brian and Brian's having an issue with his doctor. His doctor's just broken the news. He needs surgery. He's trying to rush him into getting the surgery right away. And Gail pulls the doctor aside and talks to him. And, you know, he's talking about the athlete mind. Like he's talking to 
how he understands Brian on a level that goes beyond anything that's about skin. You know, that's just about like, what is their shared mentality of two people who love a sport? Brian's a professional athlete, Mr. Professional gets into a habit after a while. He gets himself ready for a game mentally as well as physically. Because he knows those two things are all tied up together. And there's a clock inside. And when the game starts, he's 100% mentally and physically. And what Brian is saying is that you're scheduling the game before he can get ready. Well, couldn't it wait until over the weekend? Well, yes, it could, then let it. And, you know, thinking about it, like having these like two parallel physical injuries happen to both of these men, there is this kind of subtle story in the in underneath the film that actually pops out even more in the memoir that Gail wrote. You know, like he hurt his knee and he acted like the world was over and Brian was dying and acting like everything was going to be kind of fine and cracking jokes about it. And in that chapter, what really seems to motivate Gail and like make Gail love Brian is feeling like Brian was just this braver person who handled those setbacks with like this courage that he felt like he didn't have, you know? Yeah. Maybe that makes the melodramatic music of the injury. Okay. That he was, he was treating it like that. Like he was so absolutely upset. And then to see the kind of, the grace and the optimism that his best friend, you know, his, or one of his now best friends, like handled this, the admiration he felt, you know, I think that that pops in the memoir. It's here. It doesn't, I think pop as strong as it does in the memoir though. Or did it, did it for you? Did you feel that? I mean, again, this movie paints by numbers, you know, in very broad strokes. So I get what you just said. Like I understand it, but yeah, I think I feel like, yeah, the novel would feel like it's a little bit more grounded than that, but I definitely, I think I get that idea. That, I think that's what I really like loved about this film is when they when they are friends and when they admire each other and when Gail gives a speech about their friendship, when like he's able to start giving speeches and talking and being really connected to his emotions, like everything he's saying about Brian feels earned. Right. Yeah, I agree. I'd like to say a few words about a guy I know, a friend of mine. His name is Brian Piccolo. And he has the heart of a giant. And a rare form of courage which allows him to kid himself and his opponent. Cancer. He has a mental attitude which makes me proud to have a friend who spells out courage 24 hours a day, every day of his life. Now you flatter me by giving me this award. But I say to you here and now, Brian Piccolo is the man of courage who should receive the George S. Hallis Award. It's mine tonight. And Brian Piccolo is tomorrow. I love Brian Piccolo. And I'd like all of you to love him too. And tonight, you hit your knees. 
Please ask God to love him. By the way, that speech that he gives is exactly the speech that he gave in real life. And same with the locker scene. Like yeah. both of those speeches were real Gale speeches. I mean, so much of the dialogue in here is just real. It really comes exactly from what he said. And there is this touching moment where he gets that trophy for courage. And he was sincere about it. He like gave that trophy to Brian's wife the next day. He like took a piece of paper and he wrote Brian's name on it and he taped it over the trophy Hmm. and he gave her that plaque. And Brian had been hoping to even make it to there that night, but the hospital and everything, he couldn't get out. And shortly after he died and, you know, Gail asked his wife if she would bury him with the trophy. And his wife said that it meant so much to her. She really wanted just to keep it to like remember him by. Right. But yeah, like all of that is just, it's just there and it's beautiful. Although like they actually cut out some of the melodrama that they could have even added in, you know, like because crazy things happened this last year. And in real life, the real Gail wasn't able to be at um, Brian's bedside when he died because the day before his parents had gotten into a horrible car accident and his dad was in a coma. So Gail was trying to deal with that. And then as he was trying to deal with his dad being in a coma, came down with the 104 fever himself. Yeah. And so the day that Brian died, he was in the hospital, also a different hospital, like incapacitated with fever. They cut that out, which I can see why. It just makes it a lot more complicated. Also, apparently, like this same year, because we're in this moment of cultural change, uh, one of the other stories that I love from Gail's book is that hippies were starting to try to invade the NFL And so one year at training camp, this guy from California shows up and he's wearing leather pants and he's barefoot and he's like, I'll play. And so he plays. He like he is going out for the team. You know, he was the star player from California. And then after a couple of days, he just says, you know, I want to be a hippie. And he just leaves the NFL. Wow, that's wild. Really? Yeah, I, I love these moments of like where the culture is shifting dramatically. You know, like dramatically under people's feet. And you could be a really great jock, but suddenly be like, I'm moved by the summer of love and I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, look, we're moved by this movie. Uh, This movie obviously comes out on TV. It's a big hit that goes into the theater. Is there anybody who doesn't like it? You know, I couldn't find anybody uh, with a caveat. Like as hard as I looked for reviews of this, I was really only finding reviews of this films from pretty much all white guys. And so I didn't feel like I got a whole perspective on how this film was thought of at the time. But I pulled this uh, bit of a review from the Garden City Telegram in Kansas because I I think it gets to the heart about uh, what we're talking about here. He says, if it had been fiction, a contrived film, it would have been so pure corn, typical television pap, unbelievable in this day and age. But Brian's song is a true story. And so because of that, this critic calls it tender and moving. And he says that in this day, when we can feel that there is more hate than love, more bigotry than tolerance, more concern for self than others, Brian's song was like a rainbow after a storm. It lifted the spirit, even if ephemerally, it left me with the feeling that maybe things are not as bad as they seem, that the millennium may not be as distant as we think. And that review really hit me, A, because he thinks that by the millennium, everything will be fine. Um, And I wish, I wish. I wish, but the idea that he says this film hit him because it was true, because he knew that it was based on a true story, he was able to be moved by it. Whereas if it was this exact same film, but it had been fictional, he would have thought it was trash. Oh, and absolutely. That's interesting. Like what? Well, I think how that, does that work? Well, but I think I get that point of view, too, because it's like, oh, well, you're just writing for the drama. And and but it goes back to that idea of like, 
why I think we like sports stories. It's like, well, if it's true, I can cry at it. It goes back to that whole idea again. Like we're constantly like, but if it's true, then it's real. It's like if love story is not true, that's garbage. That's notebook is whatever. You know, it's it's a weird it's a weird line. I don't say I agree with it. Why do we need so much permission to cry? I but that look, you know, uh, we're in a society that I think is very much that's the way that we look at things. Like you know, I don't like that it's manipulating me. How dare it? But you know, it's you know I. I it, it's an interesting debate that I think will continue to always be had and, and hopefully we'll get to be smarter and better and, um, and, and, you know, and grow. I mean, but, uh, but I can, I can see, I can see how if you watch this and it was just like a melodrama, you'd be like, eh, whatever, you know, yeah, it's too much. It's too much, but maybe it's a lesson for all of us to just enjoy the melodrama, that, but let us feel the feels. Um, you know, <laughs> except you're not allowed to say the word feels. Oh, sorry. Yeah, right. I know that. That's bad. Too. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm curious about this. Okay, I have two questions that I want to ask you. Okay, one. When this film ended, the way that the film ends, were you thinking of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Yeah, I was actually. It was such a, an abrupt ending. I was like, oh, what? Well, okay. Like, it, yeah, there was an element of that. It felt. Yeah, I had that that sense. Like, and we're done. <laughs> Yeah, it ends on death, but the death is like a freeze frame of somebody in full life, like running yeah. and jumping. Yeah, I mean, this movie came out, I mean, not very long after De- uh, Butch Cassidy at all. So I was like, oh, did they just totally steal that ending? I think have. they did. They might have. I mean, right. why not? <laughs> well, and then the second thing I want to ask you is, what is Brian's song? What is the song? The song of Brian is this. This is Brian's song. Brian's song is that he, you know, this is like an ode to Brian. Right. This is the this is this is like this is, you know, Gail's song about this amazing person that made his life better. It's his love song to this man who got him, you know, in the game in, a, in an amazing way. I don't know, like I, like. Ode to Brian doesn't sound as good as Brian's song, but I, I feel like that's what it is. It, it, it's a it's it is this tale we're hearing. This is Brian's movie. It's not Gail's movie. It's Brian's movie. Okay, because I was like, is Brian's song when he gets up and he sings his fight song? Like, is no. that what this is? The Brian singing right here? Yeah. Oh, here's to Wake Forest. <laughs> finest red, ruddy, reddish filled to the brim. Her songs, they are many, unrivaled by any. With hearts are flowing, they will sing a hymn. Rah, rah, rah. I mean, I, I was trying to make an argument for that because I was trying to figure out what Brian's song was like in that scene. He's at least saying like, yes, I went to a school that you guys don't respect, but I'm a fighter. I was like, so maybe the Brian song is the fight song. Like he is a fighter. And he'll fight even though he's not that good of a fighter. Like, he'll he'll sing this song even though he's not that good of a singer. Like, he tells Gail when he stands up, you know, you just got to do it. You just got to kind of do it with panache. The way we tell our contestants on screen tests, you got to do it with your, your panache. I, karaoke rules. I know, yeah. Well, maybe it's like Brian's song is the song that Gail sings about Brian, a man who is typically shy, who's opening up to finally, Gail is the quiet one. So maybe it's the song that he needs to sing. Maybe it should be called Ryan's speech since he just gives a lot of speeches. 
<laughs> the speech of Brian. I don't know. But, well, the I guess the question is, would we send this song out to outer space? Probably not. But I yeah. do find myself very affected by how much this film struck a chord with people. Like, I, I actually, I wish more people cried at more movies. I wish more people cried at everything. And I say that with a bit of hypocrisy. I'm not very much of a, of mm-hmm. a crier. I do cry at certain commercials. Um, other than that, I, I, I wish I cried more. Maybe I'm just, maybe that's me. I wish I cried more. So therefore, I respect this film because it made people cry. Yeah, well, look, I don't know if this goes up. I think it's an interesting flavor in the show that we've been doing about these movies because it's a very different type of film. Um, and maybe it opens up the door for um, more films to hit these moments. Like, you know, I think that you could see moments like this in Swingers and like, you know, like these buddy bro movies, these like bro- buddy cop movies, you know, which I think, um, I wouldn't say French Connection is that, but I think like, you know, of all the movies in the 80s, like this idea of like two people from different sides coming together, seeing each other for who they actually are. You know, it's like Mel Gibson and 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 uh, and uh, Danny Glover and Lethal Weapon, you know, like the same idea, like, you know, cradling each other and crying and, you know, going to get them help. You know, like, I think there's something here that maybe sets a tone. I don't know. Maybe I'm saying maybe I'm putting it too boldly, but you can't you can't negate the effect a giant movie has on the art that comes after it. Yeah, so, maybe I, there really yeah. is that direct line. Like, Brian's song lets William Blinn do Starsky and Hutch, which, like, popularizes the buddies on the run kind of thing. Yeah. I've actually never seen Starsky and Hutch, so I could be completely making that up. I'm just assuming it's, like, buddies because there's two people. Yeah. Um, um, all right, well, Amy, this has been a fascinating conversation. Next week, we're doing another kind of out-of-the-box film, uh, Cool Runnings, about the Jamaican bobsled team. Of course, another uh, true story. This one definitely more comedic. Uh, take a listen to the trailer. What's a bobsled? That's a bobsled. The key elements for a successful sled team are a steady driver and three strong runners to push off down the ice. Ice! Ice! We were just wondering... If you'd be interested in coaching the first Jamaican bobsled team. No! Greetings, sled guy. Sorry to bother you, but you don't want to help us. Cut out! Snow, you don't have any. It's 900 degrees out there. Time, you don't have any. The Olympics are in three months. Some people say, you know, they can't believe Jamaica, we have a bobsled team. I remember loving this movie. I haven't seen it since I was in high school. So very excited to go back in. You've never seen it either, right? I've or, never seen it. I've uh, never seen it. I hope I hope it's as good <laughs> as I remember it. I remember it being very funny. Um, all right. Well, Amy, uh, you can get Cool Runnings wherever you find your streaming films or you can use your library card and even find it on uh, the amazing rental sites that they have there. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. 
Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.